Welcome, everybody, to the Informed Decisions podcast, where we discuss the latest economic, demographic, and public policy research that is helping Utah prosper. I'm Nick Theriot, the Communications Director at the Gardner Institute here at the University of Utah. Today, we'll be talking about a topic on the minds of most, if not all, Utahns, Russian President Vladimir Putin's war of choice in Ukraine, current trends in gas and energy prices, and the future of renewable energy with our guest, Gardner Institute Senior Energy Analyst, Tom Holst. As a senior energy analyst, Tom conducts research on the economic impact of Utah's energy industry and analyzing energy economic development scenarios. Tom earned a BS in chemical engineering and an MBA from BYU. Prior to joining the Institute, he held a variety of energy-related assignments in the U.S. and abroad. He started his career at Mobile Oil Corporation in New York City, then accepted assignments as a refined products trader in Hamburg, Germany, London, and Moscow, Russia. He recently opened new enterprise offices for Unical in Rio de Janeiro and Moscow. And most recently, he worked on the Angola LNG product as the gas supply manager before serving as Chevron's country manager in Romania. So let's get started. Before we dive in, I wanted to set the stage by expanding on your background a bit. Tell us about your time abroad and how that experience has framed your view of what's happening in Eastern Europe right now. Yeah. Um, I started my career in New York City working for Mobile Oil, and in 1990, I received an assignment to work in Hamburg, Germany. I was trading home heating oil in the German domestic market, and so I would buy 30,000-ton cargoes of heating oil in the Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerpen enclave, and then bring them around to offload in Bremen. There were two significant events that occurred during my time in Hamburg. The first was on the 2nd of August, 1990 when Saddam Hussein of Iraq uh, invaded Kuwait to gain direct access to the Persian Gulf. He burned Kuwaiti oil fields on his military march, and that drove up energy prices. Uh, Then on the 3rd of October, 1990, uh, East and West Germany were reunited after being split apart at the end of World War II. And the German capital moved from Bonn to Berlin, and I was encouraged by Mobil to go to East Germany and do business with the East German state companies. And I made similar visits to Warsaw, Poland, and Vilnius, Lithuania. And then after that, my my next assignment was in Moscow, and my mandate from the CEO of Mobil was to assess the business atmosphere in Russia looking uh, for not only commodity trading opportunities, but looking for opportunities for the chemicals group, the lubricants group of mobile, and then our oil and gas exploration people. Um, by the way, I, I started by doing business actually in Lithuania 
I realized that I would never be able to remit profits on my work. Um, and the Russian fiscal authorities would not let me remit profits abroad. So I had to, I would buy oil in Russia, take it to Vilnius, to Lithuania at their refinery, and then I could remit profits back to headquarters. I did the same type of commercial deal with the refinery in Belarus. And the interesting thing that I remember about that was there was a Russian Orthodox priest and President um, Alexander Lukashenko who participated in the signing ceremony. Lukashenko, who's billed as the last dictator in Europe, uh, has been on the seat of power for 28 years. Um, just one final note. Did I meet oligarchs while I was in Russia? Yeah, I met uh, two or three of them, but they weren't oligarchs then. They were just uh, ordinary guys when I met them. Uh, no like, longer. Right. <laughs> Mikhail Friedman, Victor Vexelberg, and Alec Deripaska had good educations, but more importantly, they had street smarts. That is, they knew how to play in a rough-and-tumble world. To give an example, Derek Pasca, who is a minerals oligarch, lived, worked, and slept for two months in a remote office location of a company that was involved in a contested privatization. And then, yeah, that's, that's my experience that I had in Eastern Europe. Well, that's a perfect way to segue into what's mm -hmm. happening uh, currently, this mm -hmm. uh, Putin's war of choice in Ukraine and uh, how it uh, has caused a great deal of turmoil, to say the least, uh, in that area of the world and globally as well. Um, so let's transition to the economics of, of these current events. Uh, the, the International Monetary Fund expects Ukraine's economy to shrink 35% this year, and some even expect that to be a lowball, mm -hmm. um, while the West's efforts to punish Russia are poised to cause its economy. Again, IMF estimates about 8.5%, which again, might even be too low. But um, So expand on these impacts and what they kind of mean on the, for, the, what, for the global energy market mm -hmm. uh, uh, in general. Russia, obviously, huge energy exporter to Europe and, and other mm -hmm. parts of the world, of course. So what, in terms of the economics, what do they mean for the global energy market? Yeah. I think the IMF forecast for Ukraine is low. I don't see how Ukraine will recover in the near term. Um, it was the breadbasket for the Soviet Union. Ukraine exports uh, wheat and corn into the international market. Um, all of those are drivers of inflation abroad. Um, the IMF forecast for Russia doesn't really figure into President Putin's calculus. His objective is to reconstitute the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, um, which disbanded in 1990. The legacy of the USSR is that it made 286 million people poor as church mice. The upside of the USSR was its education and its health systems. 
plus a guaranteed two-week vacation in the Crimea or on the Black Sea coast. The downside was that every worker received 200 rubles per month. Um, anyway, the Putin's method of reconstituting the uh, the USSR is by creating frozen conflict zones, and a frozen conflict zone is created in countries where there are Russian speakers living who, if necessary, could be folded back into Russia. And in the case of Ukraine, Russian speakers live in the Donbass and the Luhansk regions. There are Russian speakers in uh, Georgia's provinces of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And there was a war there in 2008. In 2014, Putin annexed Crimea because Nikita Khrushchev illegally gifted Crimea to Ukraine in 1954. It wasn't illegal for Khrushchev to do that, but it offended uh, President Putin greatly. So those frozen conflict zones exist in Georgia, between Azerbaijan and Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh and in Transnistria in Moldova. So there is a, a playbook that Putin will follow. Um, and when the popularity of an autocrat falls, starting a war is a great way to recall the glory of the Soviet Union during World War II. And Russians refer to that as the Great Patriotic War. Right. And he's able to fund that playbook in these wars via his you know, massive energy exports. And, uh, you know, of course, mainly the, the, the talk has been that, uh, well, the facts are that Europe uh, imports most of, you know, mm -hmm. some upwards of, I believe, 30 percent from, from, from Russia. So that, of course, complicates this entire uh, endeavor of trying to sanction Putin and um, trying to reel him in. But closer to home, how exposed is the United States to Russian energy exports compared to other regions and nations? There's, uh, there was a, a halt or a, a pause put in place to that, I believe, by, uh, mm -hmm. by the Biden administration uh, importing uh, Russian energy. But uh, in terms of other nations, how, how, uh, how does the United States stack up and who is most vulnerable, or rather who... Uh, who stands to lose the most or have the most exposure to this, uh, to this cutoff or trying to, uh, to, to cut off uh, Putin's war chest mm -hmm. being funded via his energy exports? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the United States has relatively small exposure. It's only 4% of uh, Russia's total crude oil exports. However, Poland, Germany, and the Netherlands have large exposures. Um, the Netherlands receives 13% of Russia's crude oil exports, Germany 10%, and Poland 6%. Now, one way to, to replace those Russian crude oil deliveries is to invite OPEC to ramp up its production. Unfortunately, uh, the United States is in a period of poor diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia. 
Um, in short, the U.S. has not yet recognized Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as the successor to the Saudi crown because of his role in the two th- his alleged role in the 2018 murder of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. I actually agree with the U.S. position of avoiding business with autocratic regimes. And quite frankly, the alternative suppliers of crude oil aren't much better. Uh, In Iran, um, the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khomeini, uh, fits the role of an autocrat. Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro is in the same, same vein. And I believe the U.S. should avoid doing business with autocrats. And we'll get to uh, kind of potential uh, le- levers and, and uh, you know, potential uh, solutions to this, uh, you know, lack of suppliers and who we actually want to be dealing with and not dealing with in a moment. But I want to first bring it uh, close to home here in Utah. Americans, Utahns are feeling the effect of rising prices across the board, both at home and at the pump. And so just a basic question, what goes into the price of a gallon of gas when you go and fill up at the gas station? What, are, what, mm-hmm. what, what components are driving these rises in costs? There are four major components, uh, taxes levied by the feds and by the state, distribution and marketing expenses, refining costs, and then the uh, the fourth element is crude oil, which is over makes comprises over half of the cost of a gallon of gasoline. Um, Starting with taxes, uh, the federal and Utah state taxes together account for roughly 50 cents per gallon at the pump. Um, Distribution and marketing is the cost of delivering motor gasoline to retail outlets. Most of Utah's population lives along the Wasatch Front, and the five refineries are located in North Salt Lake. So although I don't have Utah-specific costs, I would expect these Utah costs are in line with the national average. Refining costs, um, the five North Salt Lake refiners process roughly 200,000 barrels per day of crude oil. That capacity is larger than our neighbors, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. Once again, I don't have any specific refining operating cost data, but the final is crude oil. And there we have second by second, minute by minute, day by day information about oil prices. And that's West Texas Intermediate is the marker crude for all crude oils in the U.S. Sure. They, they read them off the same as they do the NASDAQ and the, yeah. and the S&P, they, the, the, the price of crude oil. It's, uh, yeah. It seems, and even more volatile, goes without mm-hmm. saying, currently. Um, well, the next question, perhaps an obvious one, uh, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. What are the levers we can use to relieve the price of the pump, and how big of an impact can or will they have? Are we... Are we there's been discussion of drilling, tapping oil reserves, possible tax relief. I mean, Utah as a state, we are an oil producing state. We do refine here. Then again, you know, we are we are a relatively small state. I mean, as a as a state or as a country, what uh, what possible levers can be pulled? Yeah. 
There are uh, two levers that I think uh, will be used by the federal government. The first of them is release of crude oil barrels from the strategic petroleum reserves, which were created during the 1970s OPEC oil embargo. And uh, President Biden has announced that one million barrels per day will be released onto the U.S. market over the period of the next six months. And so roughly there will be 180 million barrels of these petroleum reserves that go out. And directionally, these additional crude oil barrels will tamp down crude oil prices and with that then motor gasoline prices. Um, the second um, the second proposal that's been put forward by uh, the federal government is allowing sales of MoGas with 15% ethanol. Um, if that is implemented, prices could go down by about 10 cents a gallon. Most motor gasoline available at the pump today is uh, ethanol 10%. Uh, if ethanol at 15% levels is approved for use, uh, it would be available and could be used in vehicles from model year 2001 and newer. However, having said that, the strategy of using increased uh, ethanol 15 availability to keep a lid on pump prices faces one significant hurdle, and that is it's just not available in a lot of places. It's currently offered at uh, 2,300 uh, service stations, but there are about 150,000 fueling stations nationwide, meaning that you know, E15 really has some limitations. It's, it would, uh, the strategy is dependent on a robust corn harvest. Um, it's a little bit too early to forecast what the corn harvest will look like, but the producing states are my home state, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota. I wanted to follow up on one of those. You mentioned the strategic petroleum reserves, and I just a just a quick. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you just describe the logistics of what that looks like? I, I've been curious because I've heard conversations about just ask just folks asking what is this? Are we talking barrels sitting in a warehouse somewhere? Are we talking giant containers or of of oil here? And then once they take those reserves, that million barrels a day, mm -hmm. does it? What process does it go through? Essentially, how long does it take from the when it's in the reserve to a gas pump? I, what, what does that look like? Sure. There are uh, four locations along the U.S. Gulf Coast where they have storage tank farms that hold the 714 million barrels of crude oil. As I mentioned, they're drawn down during times of natural disasters, such as Hurricane Katrina, when everything stopped in the Gulf Coast. Um, what happens? How are these uh, reserves drawn down? Um, 
there is there are logistical issues to be dealt with and that's why there's only will be a release of 1 million barrels per day because it will depend on pipeline availability avail availability of uh marine export that is uh ships coming in and loading barrels of crude oil and taking them around to the east coast or going through the isthmus of panama to the west coast ideally uh yeah it will the 1 million barrel per day will overcome these logistic hurdles and that there will be sufficient room in the pipelines that cross all areas of the united states to get uh, yeah this crude oil to places that need it all right so these rising gas prices and of course conflict in eastern europe have had a shall we call it a mixed impact on conversations surrounding renewable energy and a changing climate we've heard how current events have highlighted the need for a shift to renewables and electric cars evs to avoid a reliance on oil altogether and reverse the effects, of course, of, of uh, global warming. But there have also been loud and increasing calls for uh, ramping up fossil fuel production and more immediate help for American consumers at the pump. So how do we move forward healthier and stronger in terms of our economy and the future of renewables, given uh, everything that's, that's happening right now that's impacting this market? We are in a period that's called an energy transition. That is, we are shifting from fossil fuel energies to energies that are renewable and are friendlier to the environment. Oil and gas companies are reconfiguring themselves to adjust to these renewable energies. And let me talk about how oil and gas companies are handling that transition. First of all, I'm a Chevron alumnus. In Utah, the Intermountain Power Project will switch from coal to a mix of hydrogen and natural gas to drive their electricity generating turbines in Delta, Utah. Creation of a hydrogen and its storage in a salt dome cavern is presently led by a consortium of Magnum and Mitsubishi. However, Chevron has applied to be a part of that Magnum-Mitsubishi consortium and finalization of uh, Chevron's participation is expected by mid-year. So Chevron has leaned into the energy transition. Uh, I'm also an alumnus of Exxon and Mobil. And at the last Exxon Mobil board meeting, uh, shareholders voted in three climate activists. And uh, keep wow. in mind, one climate activist on a board can make a lot of noise, but three climate activists can really uh, change a lot of what the ExxonMobil and the direction that they're going. Uh, BlackRock investment funds such as BlackRock, Fidelity, 
the New York State Pension Fund and the California State Pension Fund held enough shares to vote these three climate activists onto the board. Interesting. So there is, there are self-starters, there are oil companies that are leaning into the transition, but there are also companies that will be pulled into it by their board of directors. Interesting. Well, Tom, thanks for being here. Okay. Thank you, Nick. Thank you.